Section 10 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 1. Ancient Chaldea, Part 10. Actual history occupied but a small space in the lists, barely twenty centuries out of a whole of three hundred and sixty. Beyond the historic period the imagination was given a free reign, and the few facts which were known disappeared almost completely under the accumulation of mythical narratives and popular stories. It was not that the documents were entirely wanting, for the Chaldeans took a great interest in their past history, and made a diligent search for any memorials of it. Each time they succeeded in disinterring an inscription from the ruins of a town, they were accustomed to make several copies of it, and to deposit them among the archives, where they would be open to the examination of their archaeologists. When a prince undertook the rebuilding of a temple, he always made excavations under the first courses of the ancient structure, in order to recover the documents which preserved the memory of its foundation. If he discovered them, he recorded on the new cylinders, in which he boasted of his own work, the name of the first builder, and sometimes the number of years which had elapsed since its erection. We act in a similar way today, and our excavations, like those of the Chaldeans, end in singularly disconnected results. The materials which the earth yields for the reconstruction of the first centuries consists almost entirely of mutilated records of local dynasties, isolated names of sovereigns, dedications of temples to gods, on sites no longer identifiable, of whose nature we know nothing, and too brief allusions to conquests or victories over vaguely designated nations. The population was dense and active in the plains of the lower Euphrates. The cities in this region formed at their origin so many individual, and for the most part petty states, whose kings and patron gods claimed to be independent of all the neighboring kings and gods. One city, one god, one lord. This was the rule here as in the ancient feudal districts from which the nomes of Egypt arose. The strongest of these principalities imposed its laws upon the weakest. Formed into unions of two or three under a single ruler, they came to constitute a dozen kingdoms of almost equal strength on the banks of the Euphrates. On the north we are acquainted with those of Agade, Babylon, Kuta, Karsag Kalama, and that of Kishu, which comprised a part of Mesopotamia and possibly the distant fortress of Haran. Petty as these states were, their rulers attempted to conceal their weakness by assuming such titles as kings of the four houses of the world, kings of the universe, kings of Shumur and Akkad. Northern Babylonia seems to have possessed a supremacy amongst them. We are probably wise in not giving too much credit to the fragmentary tablet which assigns to it a dynasty of kings, of which we have no confirmatory information from other sources, Amulgula, Shamash-Nazir, Amal-Sin, and several others. This list, however, places among these phantom rulers one individual at least, Shargina Sharukin, who has left us material evidence of his existence. This Sargon the Elder, whose complete name is Shargani Shar Ali, was the son of a certain Itabel, who does not appear to have been king. At first his possessions were confined to the city of Agade and some undetermined portions of the environs of Babylon, but he soon succeeded in annexing Babylon itself, Sippara, Kishu, Uruk, Kutu, and Nippur. The contemporary records attest his conquest of Elam, Guti, and even of the far-off land of Syria, 
which was already known to him under the name of Amuru. His activity as a builder was in no way behind his warlike zeal. He built Ekur, the sanctuary of Bel in Nippur, and the great temple Ulber in Agade, in honor of Anunit, the goddess presiding over the morning star. He erected in Babylon a palace which afterwards became a royal burying place. He founded a new capital, a city which he peopled with families brought from Kishu and Babylon. For a long time after his day it bore the name which he bestowed upon it, dur Sharukin. This sums up all the positive knowledge we have about him, and the later Chaldeans seem not to have been much better informed than ourselves. They filled up the lacuna of his history with legends. As he seemed to them to have appeared suddenly on the scene, without any apparent connection with the king who preceded him, they assumed that he was a usurper of unknown origin, irregularly introduced by the favor of the gods into the lawful series of kings. An inscription engraved, it was said, on one of his statues, and afterwards, in the seventh century B.C., copied and deposited in the library of Nineveh, related at length the circumstances of his mysterious birth. Sharukin, the mighty king, the king of Agade, am I. My mother was a princess, my father I did not know him. The brother of my father lived in the mountains. My town was Azupirani, which is situated on the bank of the Euphrates. My mother, the princess, conceived me, and secretly gave birth to me. She placed me in a basket of reeds. She shut up the mouth of it with bitumen. She abandoned me to the river, which did not overwhelm me. The river bore me. It brought me to Aki, the drawer of water. Aki, the drawer of water, received me in the goodness of his heart. Aki, the drawer of water, made me a gardener. As gardener, the goddess Ishtar loved me, and during forty-four years I held royal sway. I commanded the black heads and ruled them. This is no unusual origin for the founders of empires and dynasties. Witness the cases of Cyrus and Bamulus. Sargon, like Moses, and many other heroes of history or fable, is exposed to the waters. He owes his safety to a poor fella who works his shadoof on the banks of the Euphrates to water the fields, and he passes his infancy in obscurity, if not in misery. Having reached the age of manhood, Ishtar falls in love with him as she did with his fellow craftsman, the gardener Ishulanu, and he becomes king, we know not by what means. The same inscription which reveals the romance of his youth recounts the successes of his manhood, and boasts of the uniformly victorious issue of his warlike exploits. Owing to Lacuna, the end of the account is in the main wanting, and we are thus prevented from following the development of his career, but other documents come to the rescue and claim to furnish its most important vicissitudes. He had reduced the cities of the lower Euphrates, the island of Dilmun, Dirilu, Elam, the country of Kazala. He had invaded Syria, conquered Phoenicia, crossed the arm of the sea which separates Cyprus from the coast, and only returned to his palace after an absence of three years, and after having erected his statues on the Syrian coast. He had hardly settled down to rest when a rebellion broke out suddenly. The chiefs of Chaldea formed a league against him, and blockaded him in Agade. Ishtar, exceptionally faithful to the end, obtains for him the victory, and he comes out of a crisis in which he might have been utterly ruined, with a more secure position than ever. All these events are regarded as having occurred sometime about 3800 B.C., at a period when the Sixth Dynasty was flourishing in Egypt. Some of them have been proved to be true by recent discoveries, 
and the rest are not at all improbable in themselves, though the work in which they are recorded is a later astrological treatise. The writer was anxious to prove, by examples drawn from the chronicles, the use of portents of victory or defeat, of civic peace or rebellion, portents which he deduced from the configuration of the heavens on the various days of the month. By going back as far as Sargon of Agade for his instances, he must have at once increased the respect for himself on account of his knowledge of antiquity, and the difficulty which the common herd must have felt in verifying his assertions. His zeal in collecting examples was probably stimulated by the fact that some of the exploits which he attributes to the ancient Sargon had been recently accomplished by a king of the same name. The brilliant career of Sargon of Agade would seem to have been, in his estimation, something like an anticipation of the still more glorious life of the Sargon of Nineveh. What better proof of the high veneration in which the learned men of Assyria held the memory of the ancient Chaldean conqueror? Naramsin, who succeeded Sargon about 3750 B.C., inherited his authority, and to some extent his renown. The astrological tablets assert that he attacked the city of Aparek, on the borders of Elam, killed the king, Rish-Raman, and led the whole people away into slavery. He conquered at least part, if not the whole, of Elam, and one of the few monuments which have come down to us was raised at Sippara in commemoration of his prowess against the mountaineers of the Zagros. He is represented on it overpowering their chief. His warriors follow after him in charge of the hill, carrying everything before their steady onslaught. Another of his warlike expeditions is said to have had, as its field of operations, a district of Magan, which in the view of the writer undoubtedly represented the Sinaitic peninsula and perhaps Egypt. This expedition against Magan no doubt took place, and one of the few monuments of Naram-Sin which have reached us refers to it. Other inscriptions tell us incidentally that Naram-Sin reigned over the four houses of the world, Babylon, Sippara, Nippur, and Lagash. Like his father, he had worked at the building of the Ekur of Nippur and the Bulbar of Agade. He erected, moreover, at his own cost, the Temple of the Sun at Sippara. The latter passed through many and varied vicissitudes. Restored, enlarged, ruined on several occasions, the date of its construction and the name of its founder were lost in the course of ages. End of Part 10 Read by Professor Heather and By For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org